So should we start? Let's yeah. do it. Welcome to The Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour, Canada's oldest, most significant, and most grandiose environmental news coverage. And we are on CIUT 89.5 FM, or on your beloved local community radio station listening to this Milky Smooth broadcast. And my name is David Franklin Irwin Hostetter. I'm Stephen Christian Irwin Hostetter. And I'm Lauren Latour, and I don't like it when you use milky as an adjective to describe <laughs> our show. This podcast is frothing at the lip of the mug with its warm, utterly delicious, calcium-loaded goodness. And Stefan is going to interview the great Sarah Buchanan from T, the Toronto Environmental Alliance, in the middle of this show. And they are going to be discussing... What are, they, what are you discussing? Carbon emissions in the municipal context, and also the upcoming municipal elections and, and how folks can take climate change more seriously during election season. So emissions as they relate to what cities do, like the way cities are run and the emissions that come out. Exactly. And the, and the ways that cities can and cannot regulate emissions and tackle emissions. And honestly, the ways that cities refuse to create revenue tools to allow themselves to have the climate plans and the ways that the province doesn't allow cities to have revenue tools. Both wow, cities and provinces suck. I mean, the last like 10 years has not been great. Ever just since in general, you could literally just isolate that <laughs> statement independent of any context. The last 10 years haven't been great. 2012 has unleashed a slew of new wonders upon our planetary sphere. And we're going to do environmental news. Uh, but first, Stefan's going to mention who knows what about the Brazilian elections that are currently underway. Yes. I, I mean, so there are two climate stories that I would feel like we were, that I would feel remiss not to cover on the show. I knew you were going to use that word. You got to love the word remiss. Um, so one we'll get to during the news segment, but the second I'll start off with at the top here, which as you mentioned, uh, is the Brazil election. Because it's unlikely that anything is happening in the world this month that is as consequential to climate and our continued survival as the elections going on in Brazil, beyond maybe our avoiding nuclear fallout. Since January 2019, Brazil has been led uh, by, is it Yair or Jair? Jair, bro. It's Jair. Jair no, Bolsonaro. No. <laughs> uh, who, for those who don't know, is a far-right former military officer who in his time as president, has stripped back the rights of indigenous people and facilitated deforestation of the Amazon, reaching record highs. And this has led experts to indicate that the fate of the Amazon itself rests on the, this election and the hopes that Bolsonaro will be ousted by former president Lula da Silva, who is currently running once more. 
And for the first round ha- was happened a couple days ago on October 2nd. Saw Lula pull, within, pull up 48% of the vote, which gives him about a 5% lead on Bolsonaro, but unfortunately does not break the 50% needed to avoid a runoff. And so instead, Brazilians will head back to the polls at the end of this month to vote in a two-way runoff between them. And obviously, uh, Lula's lead is promising, but Bolsonaro did better than predicted. And down ballot, a surge of pro-Bolsonaro politicians were voted into Congress, which remains heavily right-wing. And so all of this brings into sharp focus just how important this runoff will be. And to drive that point home, I'll just end with a quote from Adriana Ramos of Brazil's Instituto Socioambiental in The Guardian. Quote, it's no exaggeration then to say that the Amazon's fate rests on the outcome of our election on, this is as October 2nd, it will now be the second runoff of October 30th. If Bolsonaro wins another term in office, the world's biggest rainforest could pass its tipping point. If he loses, we have a chance to bring it and Brazil back from the brink. Right. I read a headline that was like, if Lula wins the election, Amazon rainforest loss will drop 89%. Whoa, that's colossal. That's incredible. I'm assuming that has to do with the with how uh, like illegal slashing, burning people are just sort of free reign under Bolsonaro, I would imagine. Like, and and there are some policies that uh, that Lula plans to bring in as well to sort of curb it once more. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine the ways the ways in which Bolsonaro like favors big industry and big ag and resource extraction probably is is where a decent portion of that would come from. And we are going to move into climate news now. We will not be diving into the news. We'll be moving steadily along. And, uh, <clears throat> well, I have here written that uh, if there's one thing you learn reading climate news is that researchers are constantly shocked. Don't you find that, Stefan? Researchers are always being shocked. Uh, and, they've been, and they've been shocked again. And a study published in the journal Science has found that part of the Arctic Ocean technically contained within Canada is acidifying at a rate of at least three times that of any other ocean on Earth, and is acidifying much quicker than has been predicted by scientific models. This does not mean that it's more acidic than other oceans. It just means that as the sea ice melts in the Arctic, it begins to touch the atmosphere, which has become heavily polluted with CO2, and is catching up to the acidity levels of other oceans that have had longer contact with the higher carbon dioxide levels in the air. The UN is now trying to gin up $816 million for flood relief for Pakistan. They were previously calling for $160 million in international aid, but they've now stated, quote, We are now entering a second wave of death and destruction. There will be an increase in child morbidity, and it will be terrible unless we act rapidly to support the government in increasing the provision of health, nutrition, and water, and sanitation services across the affected areas. And Denmark has joined Germany in restarting some of its coal-fired power plants for the coming winter, as Europe is planning to phase out its use of Russian oil and gas. Yeah, so this is 
this amounts to my understanding as the second time that Germany has restarted its coal fire plants after turning them down. The first time was to bridge them off nuclear after Fukushima, and now it's to bridge them off gas. And all I can say about that is let us hope that this is the last time they restart these already shut down coal plants because each time they do it, the climate suffers just a little bit more. But instead of diving further into that, I want to briefly touch on the other story that I would feel remiss not to mention, which ties into the, the reliance on Russian gas, which is specifically, it didn't seem to get a lot of coverage in climate circles, which is, or I just missed it all, and maybe that's the case. But for those who don't know, the Nord Stream pipeline that connects Russia and Germany and is the major way that most of Europe gets gas uh, from from Russia was very likely sabotaged. It might say very likely they have not fulsomely indicated it was definitely sabotaged, but for sure it was severely damaged and leaked incredible amounts of methane. Some people saying it is what has been might be the worst spill ever. And to give a sense of the the amount. Germany has estimated that about 300,000 metric tons of methane has entered the atmosphere as a result of these releases. And that's a little bit hard to quantify because these numbers get huge. And so I'm going to throw a couple more gigantic numbers out, and maybe that will help quantify it at least a little bit more, which is that this is roughly the same climate impact over a 20-year period as the annual emissions from 5.48 million U.S. cars. That means like within one day or however long this, this the, the methane was leaking out of this pipeline, we saw the equivalent of almost 6 million cars emissions for a year enter the atmosphere. And they will stay that way for 20 years. That's how long methane stays. And so let that be a reminder to folks that natural gas not a great bridge fuel because it is very dangerous for the climate. If, if you burn it, it's bad. But if it leaks before you burn it, it is much, much worse. To you, Lauren. It's moments like this that we need to be reminded that the concept of natural gas, like us using the phrasing natural gas is like contributing to and supporting like the best greenwashing branding overhaul that has maybe ever been played out like clean coal everybody knows that's bs natural gas that's great branding on the part of like fossil fuel methane gas because it is a fossil fuel it is volatile it is dangerous when when it is released into the atmosphere and it's incredibly easy to release into the atmosphere because like i don't know Think about trying to blow up a balloon. It's really easy for the air to escape out of that balloon. It's incredibly difficult to keep any sort of like gaseous material contained in a given space. Sorry, that was the sound of my watch rubbing against my mic. Anyway, so A, just like I think we in general, but also on this podcast, need to do a better job of like we should maybe try to not refer to natural gas as natural gas and instead start calling it fossil gas. And so the United States Environmental Protection Agency has rejected a petition urging them to more closely regulate neonicotinoid-coated seeds. The chemical is well known to kill pollinators like bumblebees and hummingbirds. Grist quotes Amy Van Son of the Center for Food Safety as saying, quote, 
We gave the EPA a golden chance and a blueprint to fix a problem that has caused significant harm to people, bees, birds, and the environment, and it stubbornly refused. A report published by the Penn Environment Research and Policy Center has found that over 50 years after the United States National Clean Water Act was passed, companies are still regularly dumping chemicals that cause birth defects and cancer into the rivers of Pittsburgh. Environmental Health News quotes the director of the center, Ashley Deemer, as saying, quote, All too often, polluters use our rivers as open sewers with no repercussions. California is officially in its driest three-year period on record. Its previous driest three-year period was from 2013 through 2015. And finally, Ontario is keeping its Pickering nuclear plant open for another year. The plant is the third oldest in North America and has passed its best before date. Ontario, under Doug Ford, might quadruple its energy sector emissions by expanding natural gas because Ford has generally been wholesale against wind and solar. I have like a two-sentence thought, which is exclusively about that first point, in that I just cannot believe we still haven't ended all use of neocotinoids, neonicotinoids. They have been known for at least almost as long as I've known about environmental issues, that they are one of the central reasons why we are seeing bees dying. And one of the very well-known issues we're going to have is pollinator loss and all over the world you see these attempts to bring back bees and like you know like everyone's planting bee gardens and cities understand the need to plant plant, uh, native species to allow for like future pollinator growth and yet we're still on the flip side refusing to stop the thing that we know are killing the bees and it's like it does feel a little bit like how can we expect to take on bigger problems if we can't solve something that's so specific? Like these are pesticides that are responsible for killing pollinators that we desperately need. We have to do something about it. And yet we seem to refuse time and time again. Yeah. And I mean, I know, I know Rachel Carson didn't write about specifically neonicotinoid coated seeds, but she was writing about like the relevant technology at the time, which I think was like what DDT. Anyway, it's like the very first environmental book that everybody read 50 or 60 years ago. And we're still repeating the same, the same ridiculous problems over and over and over again. And like, like this woman from like the center for food safety saying like, this is such an easy regulatory fix. And it's so obvious. And it's like, I'm sorry, who's, who, which, which bureaucrat at like the EPA is in the pocket of like big neodicotinoid? Like, I don't, what, what is happening here? Clearly I need, I need to like do more research and do a deep dive because I'm sure somebody's answered that question, but like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. And actually fun fact, it is the 60 year anniversary this year of Silent Spring uh, and Rachel Carson. Uh, I met a, a longtime listener of the show has requested us to do a special episode about Silent Spring at 60. So if anyone listening has connections to people who have been deeply impacted by Rachel Carson and might want to talk to us about it, I'd be happy to chat. I think it's a really interesting conversation to have, you know, about the impact of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring 60 years. It's this year. I think that's a great idea. We should absolutely do an episode on that. There might be like yeah. a little bit of critique there as well in terms of like looking at like the impacts of like white environmentalism on the move on like and like how it's shaped the movement. But like, no, that book was hugely influential. We should 100% do an episode on it.
Fantastic yeah. suggestion. Love that. See, we'll Thanks. listen to your feedback and we'll incorporate it for the most part. <laughs> and now we will go to a lovely music break and return with Stefan's interview with Sarah Buchanan, right? Yes. From the Toronto Environmental Alliance. Yeah. About emissions in cities and the upcoming municipal elections. Yes, and their work uh, on a pledge that they've uh, asked people to take. You mean councillors? Councillors, yeah. I'm here with Sarah Buchanan, the campaign's director at the Toronto Environmental Alliance, to chat about the upcoming municipal election and more generally how cities can take action on climate change. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Stefan. So for folks who might not, you know, don't live in the, the world that we do in municipal climate politics and affairs, can you tell us about the state of municipal emissions and how people should think about the problem at its most general scale? I think maybe I'll actually start with how, you know, people in cities are experiencing climate change, because I think that's the lens through which, you know, so many people come to understand climate change and maybe come to want to take stronger action. So here in Toronto, you know, we're experiencing a lot of stronger heat waves, longer heat waves in the summers, as well as more intense storms and flooding. Toronto has way too much pavement, which uh, when all that water pours down from the sky very intensely, tends to flood people's basements or flood our ravines. And I know a lot of other cities are experiencing a lot of similar, but maybe also unique in some way circumstances. Privacy, you've just seen, you know, a hurricane on, on, on the East Coast and folks, you know, both in cities and in rural communities reeling from that. And... Yeah, so I, I think the cities are experiencing a variety of impacts and that at the same time, that's sparking some level of action. Many cities have put together climate plans of, of varying strengths in the last, you know, five to 10 years or so. A lot of that, you know, from my observation has come from public pressure, from people speaking up, you know, a big wave after that 2018 IPCC report of people really starting to grasp the scale of the problem of the climate crisis and saying to their leaders, we need to do better, we need a strong plan. And so we have seen quite quite a few municipal climate plans come to be um, in the last you know five years or so. But I think a lot of cities are struggling with a similar problem and that is actually implementing those plans. So finding the money to do it, you know, in Ontario, Municipal budgets aren't, aren't legally allowed to be in deficit, essentially, or, or to they have to have balanced budgets. So trying to, you know, both clean up after all these storms and, and support people through heat waves at the same time as uh, reducing emissions can be tough for a lot of municipalities. And they're struggling with how to find funding sources to do it and, and how to respond to a problem that is on an enormous scale. Yeah, for sure. I'm, we talked a couple of times earlier this year with folks from Halifax who were able to get some honestly, truly inspiring legislation passed that helped actually fund their climate plan. And some of the words they used I thought was so interesting was we spoke to two counselors who were actually pushing this forward. And they were saying that 
the moment they were able to tell city staff that there'd be more funding for this work, the city staff suddenly stopped seeing it as a fearful experience, but rather as an opportunity. You know, that for so long they were working in a, in a state where the, the city staff would hear this and feel like you're being told to do even more with no more resources or even less resources. And the moment that council decided to actually put in place some funding mechanisms to allow them to pay for this, suddenly the city staff got excited about it, right? It was like, oh, now we can actually do good things with with the proper resourcing. And it apparently totally flipped their experience of trying to get this passed. And I feel like that's something that we haven't yet seen here in Toronto. Yeah, absolutely. I think that Toronto has been hesitant to put in place uh, new new revenue tools, new ways to fund climate action and not just climate action, but other priorities like affordable housing, transit. But at the same time, Toronto does have some tools that people don't really know about. I think partly because, you know, for example, our mayor has, has staked much of his career on keeping property taxes low. So he has, he doesn't talk a lot about things like the city building fund, which is an earmark on our property taxes that goes towards affordable housing and transit. Things like the land transfer tax in Toronto, you know, it, it brings in a huge amount, hundreds of millions. Usually, I think last year it was like $800 million, I think, into the city budget that basically draw, feeds on a hot real estate market and puts that money into the city budget. These are all revenue tools that go into feeding the city's budget. It would be completely not even radical or unique to have another revenue tool that went towards climate action. What could be radical and unique is the city actually having the money to do some of the massive things that it has promised to do, like making all, all existing buildings net zero, like making you know transit free, which the Toronto's climate modeling uh, actually says has to happen for us to hit our goals. So you know, it, it's something that is absolutely possible as long as we have the funds to do it and the ways to get those funds in a way that doesn't hurt people. So that, that's another consideration. Yeah, for sure. And I I did not know that our climate plan includes the fact that transit will have to be free to hit our climate goals. That like makes a lot of sense to me, but and I'm kind of, but I'm honestly impressed that staff would include that. But I guess when you're asked to do something so revolutionary as get to carbon zero, the answers have to also come with revolutionary action. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's it's kind of a gray area, right? Because that's something obviously like council would have to decide on and vote on separately. Just because they voted for the climate plan doesn't mean they also just voted in free transit, but it's something that was included in the calculations, you know, when they said, okay, as part of this climate plan, show us which actions will actually get us there over the next, you know, 18 years. And so part of that trajectory was making transit free because it's one of those big tools that will get a lot of people out of cars. So there's there's a lot of big transformative actions that were kind of included as as almost as footnotes in in these plans. And I don't think Toronto is unique in this that are going to have to happen at one time or another. So I, I'm excited that they're in there, but I also I want more people to know that they're there so we can get started working on them. Right. Yeah, exactly. It feels like part of the ways that we are delaying action is keeping people in the dark of what actually we said we would do. 
Mm-hmm. Pretty simple to make people not get excited about the stuff we said we're going to do if we never tell them what it is. So, but in terms of getting to action, can you talk about the levers to enact change that the city actually has available to it? Yeah, and that's, that's one that can be a struggle. So there's some things the city has the power to do. I like to say that every everything around you in a city that you can sort of touch and see and smell is usually within the city's powers. So things like garbage collection, things like parks and, and trees, things like the roads that we, you know, cycle or drive on, the sidewalks that we walk on. Those a lot of those things, most of those things are within the city's jurisdiction to kind of control and and make happen. So in terms of like the concrete, tangible things that we can do, you know, like planting trees, like changing how people get around on those city streets, the city actually does have quite a lot of power to influence these things. Um, At the same time, there's, you know, broader things like the Ontario Building Code, you know, the, the city doesn't control. So Toronto has some power to say, hey, new builds, you have to hit, you know, for example, follow this Toronto Green Standard. But there's a broader, more powerful Ontario building code that kind of supersedes or I don't want to say supersedes, but it, you know, it has jurisdiction, I guess, over how things are built in the province. So there's, yeah, sometimes there's a lot of tension between, you know, maybe the ambition of some city policies or programs and then these provincial or federal rules that maybe haven't haven't kept up or sometimes are more ambitious. So you get a little bit of a mismatch there. Another way, like the, the Toronto has some powers of being able to tax or, you know, put in revenue tools, like some of the things I mentioned, but it doesn't have the ability to, for example, put in an income tax or some would argue a sales tax, although some, some say that the city might have some limited powers there. So not being able to draw from income taxes really, you know, limits the pool of, of budget that can be spent by the city. So that, that's one example. Cool. And then from a sort of regulatory perspective, what, what can they do? Yeah, a little bit and a lot at the same time. So I guess the building code is one place to start, like being able to say to, to you know, folks who are building either new high rises or new single family homes, this is, you have to build it to, you know, these green standards. That's something Toronto can, uh, can regulate within the Toronto green standards. But there's also the Ontario Building Code and those regulations. Yeah. And so kind of a, like a complicated dance between those two regulations. So Toronto has been given special powers under the City of Toronto Act by the province to be able to do things like have some regulatory uh, authority over for how buildings are built, but not all cities have that. So yeah, when you get into actually regulating, it can be more complicated for, for cities to do things like you know, like telling businesses that they have to have a cap on emissions. That's something that is is squarely not in city hands. That's something that the federal government, for example, would have to do. So yeah, there's, sometimes it can be frustrating to see the city trying to do so much while some of those levers are, are outside of their hands. And, you know, another example is where we get our electricity. In Ontario, that's kind of controlled by the province. And our electricity grid in all of Ontario, which includes Toronto, is getting dirtier, it's getting more gas put into it, which means that everybody who uses electricity in Toronto 
is emitting more carbon every time you turn the lights on. And that means Toronto as a city, that means our emissions are going up on the, in the electricity sector. And that undermines Toronto's goals to hit net zero because we see that grid kind of going in the wrong direction and getting dirtier rather than cleaner. And there's like a footnote in the city's climate plan that's basically like, in order to actually reach net zero, the province needs to have a completely carbon-free grid. So we literally can't do it. It's a province doesn't change this. Yeah. Yeah. We've covered that a couple of times on the show previously, just how unfortunate it is that in this time we're trying to electrify everything as a way to move towards a potentially net zero. We are sort of going backwards in terms of gas plants, especially here in Ontario. So before we get into the the pledge that you're sort of looking to for municipal elections to do, I wonder if we can spend one more second on where these emissions come from in the city. So what are the major sources of emissions in the city that if we were going to get to net zero, we'd have to tackle? Buildings are definitely the biggest in Toronto and I think in a lot of cities. So more than half of our carbon emissions in Toronto come from heating and cooling buildings. Most of that is from natural gas and that's a huge area of action. Toronto has a whole special strategy called the net zero existing building strategy just to tackle how to make sure every building that everyone, you know, in Toronto is sitting or standing in right now actually becomes net zero, which is a pretty big undertaking. So that's by far the biggest source of emissions. And also another huge emitter is transportation. So just how we get around. A lot of the decisions about transportation are actually in city hands in terms of, you know, how many roads we build, how, whether we prioritize cleaner ways of getting around, like cycling or walking. But, you know, some of those of those levers, as you mentioned, for how we, how we, for example, incentivize, you know, people switching to electric vehicles, that's a little bit more in provincial hands just because they have more money to deal with or federal hands. So yeah, those are probably the biggest areas, buildings and transportation right now in Toronto that, that are, are the biggest emitters. Cool. Yeah. And so I feel like it's always interesting how little industry ends up coming in place because they're just sort of outside of the city's borders. And so we really just don't even have to, we have to worry about them for ourselves, but the city itself isn't sort of in the regulatory business of, of these larger emitters that sort of exist outside of our, our limits. Yeah, that's an interesting one, though, because like, you know, we kind of externalize those emissions. It's not like we're not causing those emissions, like we're still consuming, you know, many of the products that are produced in places that may be outside the city boundaries, but that create a lot of those industrial emissions. So there is kind of a push to include a lot of that more in, in the city's accounting of greenhouse gas emissions. So in some ways, it's not like a true reflective accounting and it, and it offloads a lot of those emissions onto less urban communities where it just so happens that there's more industrial activity. Yeah. And I feel similarly with how, you know, Western nations are able to sort of pretend that they're doing great while buying a bunch of stuff produced in other countries, right? Like we're really set ourselves up to limit the ways that we see ourselves as responsible for emissions and sort of try to claim it's other people's problems. But to focus in on our own city here in Toronto and to sort of move towards this, the conversation around the municipal election that is coming up, 
before we get there, though, can you give us a bit of a history in how the city has you know, approached climate in the past, you know, say, 10 years, if possible? Yeah, it's hard to know where to start. I guess I'll start in 2017, which is really when you know, the, the city's first real climate plan called Transform TO came together or, or was voted in in, in 2017. And before that, there were some iterations of, you know, the city looking at strategies to cut pollution, thinking about climate change as well. But that, that's when it started to really come together as a plan. And, and I want to also give credit to public mobilizing and organizing and pressure for making that happen because this is, cities don't just take action on their own. I think this is true with any governments. They do it because people are demanding it. So. And once again, that happened, I think, in 2019, when, again, folks kind of came together and said, we need to do better. We need a stronger climate plan in Toronto that's based on science-based targets that we now know scientists are calling for. The previous plan that Toronto had was not quite as ambitious as the plan we had now. So in 2019, Toronto passed a climate emergency declaration. Again, lots of folks, lots of grassroots organizations came together to, to make that happen. But that emergency declaration committed to making their plan more ambitious. And then in 2021, we got a more ambitious plan put on the table called the Net Zero Strategy. And that actually bucked up the year by which Toronto's aiming to be net zero by 10 years. So it went from 2050 to 2040. And that's something that, you know, that, that we were happy to see. But again, it came with stronger, accelerated, more accelerated action that we know does not have enough funding behind it. So that's, that was sort of, you know, the start of the work rather than the end of the work, I think, is getting that more ambitious plan. Now we got to, now we got to push to get it implemented. Right. Yeah, for sure. And that, that history is in part why I, you know, bring up the Halifax example earlier, because I was just honestly so impressed by the success that they had in, in pushing for that fully funded plan and get things going. But for us to join the auspicious ranks of Halifax and the other cities that have begun to take climate change a little more seriously, you have a municipal sort of election campaign pledge that you're sort of bringing forward to all the candidates. And I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, happy to. We actually just released the results today. It's hot off the presses and it shows who of the mayoral candidates, of the city council candidates have committed to four big actions that we at T pulled out as absolutely critical to move ahead environmental plans in the next term. So we have a longer laundry list of a whole bunch of policies we want to see. Those are all important. But we sat down and we thought, like, what are the big blocks that need to be unblocked in Toronto? And what are the big actions that Toronto can council and mayor can accomplish in the next four years to unblock these things and to move forward. And then let's try to build consensus around these or continue to try to build consensus around these. One of these is an actual dedicated ongoing funding tool, a revenue source to fund TransformTO, the city's climate plan to make sure that it has those funds to do what it needs to do. I'm talking about it like it's like an independent person, but you know, just like you, uh, I guess maybe I'll, I'll continue that analogy and say, just like you want to make sure that, you know, folks are, are paid enough to be able to do their jobs and accomplish what they need to accomplish. Our climate plan is probably similar. You would probably walk away from a job that didn't pay you. So the climate plan is not going to do anything if we don't put appropriate funding into it. 
So that's our, our top ask for, for candidates in there is, you know, will you commit to voting? Yes. If a motion comes forward to council and says, hey, we want a, you know, we want a parking levy that's going to bring in $575 billion every year into the city budget to go specifically to climate-friendly transportation initiatives. Will you vote yes to that? So that's what we wanted to kind of, you know, nail down candidates on. I, I use parking levy as an example. It could be, there's a whole bunch of different revenue tools today. It could take the form of. So that's one of the asks in there. Another one is a stormwater charge, which actually many municipalities already have in Ontario and Canada. And that's a way of, you know, funding potentially resilience measures, making our water system more resistant to flooding, building in some green infrastructure in order to absorb more water and reducing the massive amount of pavement in Toronto. What a stormwater charge does is essentially puts a price on pavement and says, you know, if you have a huge paved parking lot, you have to pay into the water system and you have to pay for the damage that that stormwater caused by all that pavement actually does to the city. And it encourages owners of those big paved areas to actually start to green them because there's a financial incentive to do that. So that's another one of our asks. We've also got an ask in there for landlords to have a maximum temperature that rental units can be because we have a minimum temperature right now in Toronto, but a lot of folks during heat waves stuck in incredibly hot apartments who sometimes are told by their landlords, you can't turn on your air conditioning because it will cost me too much money. And that is just absolutely wrong. And it's unhealthy and it's really dangerous. And Toronto's getting hotter, so that needs to change. So another, another ask we have is around single-use items and disposables like plastics that are, you know, polluting our city. We've got garbage bins overflowing with coffee cups. So the city has a, a plan that's been delayed and delayed to actually bring in some regulations to say, hey, you know, you have to ask first before you give people those little plastic bundles of forks and napkins and things like that. The city's been dragging its feet on implementing it. So we want to see that happen. Great. So the way it's sort of broken down in the, the pledge itself is climate action, climate resilience, and then waste and circular economy. And then you sort of have a, a pledge to ask if they would support all of these. Little logistical question, I'm curious, have any of the people who've gone back to you said they'd support like some, but not all, or is this really just an all or nothing kind of operation? Yeah. So we did have a few candidates uh, write to us and say, I like these ones, but I don't like this one. Can I still be part of your team or can I still take this pledge? And we actually made the decision to not include them, to just have it as all or nothing. I get that there are some candidates who have different environmental priorities than we have selected here. That's totally okay. We are not, we're not endorsing candidates. We're not saying these are the only ways to take action, but for the T supporters who follow our work, who care about the things that, that, you know, we've been working on, these are the really big ways that we see, frankly, that, that we see our leaders stalling on and kicking down the road. So we do want to, we did want to pin them down on some more slippery topics. And that's another reason why we wanted to make it all or nothing, because, you know, some some are easier to commit to than others, I think. And we wanted to make sure that that the folks whose name are on this this pledge are, are going to go all in on these things. Yeah, for sure. Especially I feel like the trying to commit to actually funding climate action is one of these ones that 
you can say you can, you can come with all that we've shown. The city has shown over and over again that it's more than willing to come across and say, "Yeah, we'll have all the other plans or anything else that costs other people money." You know, like some of these other plans. But if it costs, if it requires the, the actual councilors or the mayor themselves to ex expend political capital to raise revenue, that seems to be where the rubber really hits the road, and and you don't, and we get stuck there seemingly time and time again. And so I, I totally get why you're like, no, no, no you got to commit to all of them because I, w I can guess which one they might drop. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's why like two of the four of them are, you know, revenue tools, essentially they're ways of bringing in new revenue for these things. Cause I, I'm just, you know, I am not a person who wants to propose big expensive solutions without giving some ideas of, of how to actually make them happen and how to fund them. But I, partly because I know that they won't happen if they don't have a way to fund them. Yeah. A lot of good ideas die on the budget floor and, and never get brought back. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Especially when you are asking for things in the end that is like free transit, then you really need some extra funding coming in there unless you're, you know, really, well, really that's going to have to require obviously some other kinds of, of revenue, whether or not it's from the federal or provincial government or if it's just a real commitment from the city. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I should acknowledge that, that the city cannot do this alone. There's no city revenue tool that I know of that could fund like literally everything in TransformTO. Like the city needs more financial help from the province, who provides very little right now, but also from the federal government. Right, for sure. So I just want to spend a couple seconds before we move on on the resilience too, because those two on resilience I find fascinating. A, because I think it was this year that I began reading articles about the fact that people could be evicted for trying to keep themselves cool, which is unbelievable that that's even sort of legal. Like, mm -hmm. I truly cannot believe that there's an ability for landlords to say you can only use so much energy and that if you try to use more energy, we will kick you out even if it's to keep yourself safe, especially given what we saw in you know Vancouver and the heat dome. Mm -hmm. The people who are most affected were people who did not have access to cooling, and that's incredibly dangerous. It's it's truly like not allowing people to have fire escapes. Like yeah. it is actively harming them and putting them in harm's way. Yeah, and I do think it, I think it's technically actually not allowed for them to evict people for using their air conditioning. But there's a lot of there's a lot of other things that are allowed that sort of like skirt around it. It's it's a, a a weird area, and a lot of these bylaws were made for a different climate, right? They're made for a climate where maybe there's two, three days every summer that go above thirty degrees. So it's and it cools off at night. So it's not life threatening, for example, to to not have any way to cool your apartment in some places. But yeah, we've heard from some tenants that you know not only do they not have air conditioning, but they might have ventilation that's that's broken or not working, or fans that aren't working in their kitchen. So that means that they cook and then the air just gets trapped in there and it gets worse and worse. And, you know, if landlords are refusing to do things like fix that, that can create and amplify that, that effect of, of it being really hot. So there's just all these super old buildings and, you know, kind of crappy landlords in a lot of cases. And that combines to create really, really hot apartments. For sure. And... Secondly, this stormwater surcharge, because I know that's something that we've been trying to get past seemingly forever, 
I, like I, I, a couple different times have come back to this story about how we've somehow keep failing to make people who are causing runoff pay a storm charge. And mm -hmm. it seems like such a no brainer to me that we haven't got it through. Is there something specific that's keeping us from doing this? Is it just like lack of political will? What is it about the stormwater surcharge? It's so hard politically. You can make a, a, a whole documentary. I don't know how exciting it would be about the journey of the stormwater charge through the city of Toronto. I, I think it, it actually came up as an idea before Transform TO was even, the city's climate plan was even in place. And, you know, has moved along happily in, in cities around Toronto. But one of the big sticking points for a lot of, of councillors was, and for Toronto Water as well, was how it was designed. So there was a lot of disagreement about whether to, and, you know, essentially Toronto Water came back and said, it's going to be too expensive and too complicated to get a real accurate portrait of like exactly how much pavement is on everybody's property. And so we just can't do it. Uh, and I'm completely oversimplifying it there. But that was, you know, it came up. Everyone was like, oh, this is an interesting idea. Let's look at it. And then the answer was like, nope, too complicated. But with very little, okay, how do we actually then go and make this work kind of lens? And so it's come back a few times from counselors who've maybe tried to move motion saying, okay, well, let's look at how we can do this in a way that makes sense. And then, you know, Toronto Water comes back and says, well, here's why it won't work this time. And <laughs> it's because you haven't, last time it was like, oh, you haven't included residential. You only ask for a stormwater charge for commercial and industrial. We can't separate out the water rates for all these different categories. And so there's this kind of these technicalities that keep emerging when it comes down to it. I, I, I think that a lot of folks are, are sticking their feet in the sand and, and don't want to see this happen or they're trying to find ways to slow it down. So I think there's also a lot of misunderstanding about it. You know, I'll give you an example. Currently, if you own a, a huge parking lot in Toronto and you don't use any water, you're like literally just renting out spaces, you don't pay a water bill, right? So that means you're not paying anything, zero dollars into the city's water system that has to deal with all the runoff that comes off of your massive paved lot. Zero dollars. So who is paying? for the damage that all that runoff costs. Who's paying for all those extra big pipes that have to be installed underground? The Toronto ratepayers, the people who, you know, are just paying their regular water bills. Those bills would actually, on average, for the average residential home, get a little bit lower if they spread out that charge and included those owners of big paved areas that aren't paying to the water system right now. So that's the fact that I think gets kind of swept under the rug a little bit is the fact that it's, it's you know, for some folks actually going to save them money and instead it gets called a roof tax and everyone thinks, oh, I'm going to have to pay so much more money. Well, actually, no, that's, that's not necessarily true. Right, for sure. Man, the, the funny little battles that are so complicated, these are one of these things consistently I find when interviewing folks and doing the show is that so often you can have these big picture conversations that, that you can, that are complicated and you can imagine sort of drilling down to, but even when you get to small little things like, you know, trying to charge people for the, the stormwater that they are creating, it still gets down into this nitty, like, I feel like everything it can get more, you can get further and further down until you're like, look at the smallest possible element. And yet even that has its own complexity. It's sort of, these problems are so complex 
and end up touching so many different things in part because they're, you know, environmental and they, they end up having these like flowing, overflowing impacts, pardon the minor pun there. But yeah, that's a man. If stormwater surcharge, everyone, if you know how to get one passed, please help the city of Toronto do so. Uh, I just feel, I really hope like this is the term where we can just agree on it and move on, you know, take our extra like 270 million a year, <laughs> put it into good things and finally, you know, put this issue to bed because it's, it's going to keep coming back. If they keep saying, you know, no, not quite try it this way, that way, it's just going to keep coming back. And the amount of staff time that's going to go into continuously writing these reports to try to like weasel out of it, you know, is going to be equivalent to the staff time it would have taken to actually just implement the darn thing in the first place. So yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Just do it. Yeah, exactly. So speaking of us doing it, you've just released this pledge. How do you feel it went? Like how did how you have to go? And then how can folks find it and learn more about it? Yeah, I think it went pretty well, actually. More candidates and, and I think more incumbents signed on than I had expected. We got over 60 candidates signing on. You know, there's there's 25 boards across Toronto, so there are quite a lot of, of candidates in general. But uh, there are a lot of strong contenders and incumbents who who did sign on to this. It is entirely possible that we could have a council elected who has a majority of, of folks who support these things. So that's great. And I'll give a, a quick URL. You can find it at election.torontoenvironment.org. Just there's a link from that main page that has all of our election related stuff on it. One, one kind of disappointing thing is the, the current mayor did not sign. We did have some communication with his, his office, but yeah, there were no, no clear public commitments to, uh, to implementing these things. And in general, though, I think that it was good to see, actually, there were a few candidates who have previously voted against, for example, a stormwater charge who ended up signing the pledge. So to me, that shows that maybe the tide is starting to turn. People are starting to take this more seriously and say, listen, we got to implement some of these tools and get this stuff moving. And I think there there are some candidates, you know, kind of not necessarily the radical progressive. There, there are candidates in the middle who are starting to come around to much larger scale action on climate change and, and understand the need for it and what's, what's necessary. So I hope that materializes into actual votes at council next term because we are definitely going to be watching. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for being here. Sarah Buchanan, the campaign structure at the Toronto Environmental Alliance. And I'll, it is our custom to give our guests the last word on the show. So if you have any last thoughts you want to share and where folks can specifically find the pledge and learn more, uh, please do and take it away. Right. That's I'm glad that you gave me the last word because I totally forgot to say what people can do to participate in this. So again, that website is election.torontoenvironment.org. And actually, you can go on there and you can pester the candidates in your ward or your mayoral candidates to actually sign this pledge. They still can. And so you can check that out, check out who has signed and who hasn't and reach out to them and say, if they haven't, say, why haven't you signed this? You can also take an individual pledge to, to vote in this coming, coming election because uh, it's, uh, it's one where we want to see some level of turnout. <laughs> We're really worried about voter turnout in this municipal election. So please, please, please vote. Tell your friends to vote and, um, and check out the results that we have on our website as well. 